Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Our focus this evening will just be verses 3 and 4, but our reading will be from verse 1 through verse 17. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by, his, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You woke up with it first thing this morning, you ate with it, you take it with you wherever you go. You even brought it with you to church this evening. You take care to make sure that you always keep it clean and that it always has some sort of protective cover on it. You'll be sure not to forget it when you go home tonight. You'll take it with you and you'll take it to bed with you. It's very precious and valuable. To you. In fact, so precious and so valuable that many of you have probably taken out insurance policies for it. In case it gets damaged in some way, you want to be sure that you have the financial means to uh, pay for the costs to restore it back to its earlier condition. I'm speaking not about a smartphone or a car that you drive, but I'm talking about your body. You wake up with your body, you eat with your body, you bring your body with you wherever you go, and we even take out health insurance policies for our bodies in case they become sick or injured. 
or even uh, another sort of insurance policy, life insurance, to cover the body in case it gets totaled, to cover one aspect of the body, the, the financial gain or the wages that the body would have earned had it continued to live. So our bodies are very valuable to us. We, we cherish them. And yet, there is an odd, odd conflict that we have going on within our bodies. Have you ever noticed that if you are tired, or if you have missed a meal and you're very hungry, that you tend to be more irritable, and that this is an opportunity for you to commit sin? That somehow there's this unusual link between the weakness of a body that hasn't slept enough or that hasn't eaten enough and a particular enticement to sin. Or perhaps think of somebody who struggles with a, a, an addiction, with substance abuse. I'm not a medical expert, but I am given to understand by those who have written on the subject that the very brain is, is changed so that the body begins to crave the abused substance, making the addiction that much harder to put to death. As though sin has gained a, uh, a, uh, a beachhead within the body from which it can launch future attacks and produce further sin within you. This evening we are starting a series in the book of Romans, and we are not going to be going through the book uh, in its entirety, we're not going to be looking at every paragraph, we won't even be looking at every chapter, but we're simply going to go through the book and look at one specific theme that shows up uh, at various places and in various ways, that of the human body. How are we to think about our bodies? And there will be various things that come up along the way, but uh, we'll encounter it first in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. And from these verses, we will learn that Jesus Christ is the pattern and procurer of your bodily hope. Jesus Christ is the pattern and procurer of your bodily hope. And so we'll take that idea and we'll We'll develop that. First, we'll look at Jesus Christ and especially those two titles that are applied to him, that he is of the seed of David and that he is the son of God. And then we'll look at how he is the pattern and the procurer then of our bodily hope. So notice first in verses three and four, we have two titles applied to Jesus. The God has fulfilled his uh, promise. He has uh, set Paul apart as an apostle to preach the gospel, which he promised beforehand concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David or of the seed of David, according to the flesh, who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as we see these two titles, descendant, seed of David, or of uh, the seed of David, and the son of God, we can recognize that this, there's a, a reference to humanity and to divinity in this. 
But we can also recognize that this needs to be developed, that there is some more texture that we need to, to recognize that these titles contain. After all, there's something more specific about being of the seed of David than just saying he became human. There's, there's some more specificity to that title. <coughs> as well with the Son of God, we will uh, try to unpack that title as well. So notice first that this is specifically a Davidic title that is being drawn out here. And that this Davidic title is qualified as being according to the flesh. This idea of being according to the flesh will be uh, drawn out, or this word flesh will be developed and used very frequently throughout Romans and will often be used with a negative connotation. Now, we don't need to read all of those negative connotations, those moral negative connotations, back into this word. But we should see this description of Jesus as being the son of David according to the flesh as one star in a wider constellation of Paul's use of the word flesh. And so we're not going to import into it this negative moral connotation, but we are going to recognize that it's set on the one hand in distinction from according to the spirit in verse 4, as according to the flesh and according to the spirit, and that a very significant part of the message of Romans in chapter 7 and 8 is going to develop this conflict within us between the flesh and the spirit. And so to say that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh is to say that he took on a human nature, that he took on David's genealogy. But also there is a hint that this nature that he took on was mortal. That the human nature which <coughs> Jesus took to himself was mortal. And we'll develop this later. But then, looking at the second title, the Son of God, our first instinct may be to think that this is uh, a reference to Jesus as the eternal Son of God, thinking of the Trinity. And I believe that is the case. But we also need to recognize that there are two senses in which this title can be used, and I think both senses are in view here. Because there is a way in which the title Son of God is applied to humans. Jesus is the Son of God eternally within the Trinity, and that idea is present within this text. He is God's Son even before he takes on human flesh, even before he becomes born of a descendant of David. But we also have that other sense in which the title Son of God can be applied to a man. And I think that that idea is in view as well here. You don't need to turn there, we won't spend too much time there, but just to, to demonstrate the, the precedence within Scripture that this title is used to refer to, to humans. Think of Genesis, chapter 5. Adam is said to beget Seth after his own likeness and image. Just before that, it is stated that God has made Adam in his image, and earlier that Adam was made in the likeness of and image of God. So the, the implication seems to be that just as Adam begets a son in his image, in some way Adam is a son of God because he has been made in God's likeness. And that is confirmed when we jump ahead to the genealogy in Luke chapter 3. It traces out gene, uh, Jesus' genealogy 
And it goes all the way back, not just to Abraham, not just to Adam, but to God himself. That the link, with, uh, the, the genealogy does not stop with Adam, but there's one more name. The Adam, the son of God. But more than those texts, I think specifically we ought to think of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I will ask you to turn there with me in your Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because this is something that ties together the title Son of God and Seed of David. The context in chapter 7 is that David would like to build a temple, a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. And he intends to do so, but the Lord sends a prophet to David and says, nope. I'm going to be the one who's going to build a house and a household, a dynasty for you. And so in describing what the Lord will do for David, he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, your seed, what we see there in, in Romans 1.3, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And so we can recognize that both seed of David and son of God are messianic titles that are applied to a human in the Old Testament. And we are looking, from the perspective of the Old Testament, forward to the coming of the seed of David and the son of God. The one that God will say, this is my son. And reading 2 Samuel 7 also helps illuminate what takes place between verses 3 and 4 in Romans, that Christ comes in the flesh, he's born, and then he's raised from the dead, but by implication, what's between birth and resurrection? Death. And we see that element drawn out in 2 Samuel 7 as well, where the Lord says, if he sins, I will chastise him with the stripes, or with the rod of men. Jesus did not sin himself, no personal sin, and yet the sins of his people were reckoned to him. And so the Father chastises him in the body. And he bears those stripes, he bears that affliction. But nevertheless, God does not let his steadfast love depart from him, but he ultimately affirms him, this is my son. And he vindicates him in the resurrection, which is what we read in Romans 1-4, that it's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that God makes this announcement, this is my son. So as we think about Jesus Christ in this pattern, we're, we're, uh, in this text, we're thinking of him in, in terms of this Davidic fulfillment, that God has promised a, an offspring of David who will be acknowledged as his son and who will be in some way chastised for sin. And yet, nevertheless, he will be vindicated and still acknowledged as God's own son. 
So then, we can consider how Jesus Christ, as the offspring of David, as the Son of God, is the pattern for your bodily hope. Notice that there is this this, uh, parallelism between verses 3 and 4. Seed of David, verse 3, Son of God. Seed of David, according to the flesh, verse 3. But in verse 4, that he is declared to be the Son of God with power or in power by his, uh, according to the spirit of holiness. So you have according to the flesh, according to the spirit of holiness, a parallelism that is being developed. And Jesus himself goes through progressive stages as man, as our mediator, from flesh to spirit in power, son of God in power. Yes, this is a reference to Jesus' human nature in Romans 1-3, but let's fill that out. What kind of human nature, what kind of reasonable, uh, what kind of body and reasonable soul did Jesus take to himself, and, and particularly what kind of body? Jesus took to himself a body that could accidentally touch a hot stove and get burn blisters. He had a body that could get tired and that could get exhausted. He had cheeks down which warm tears could drip. He had sinuses that could be congested. He had lungs that could hurt when he coughed. He had a face that could be slapped. He had wrists that could be shackled. He had hands and feet that could be pierced. He had a heart that could stop beating. He had a body in which Paul will say, God was able to condemn sin in the flesh. And so when Jesus takes on a human nature, it's a body of a a certain kind or quality that Paul is able to characterize as being according to the flesh, meaning that it's mortal, meaning that it is a, a body in which condemnation for sin may be executed. It was a body in which Jesus <coughs> natural, good, physical desires, appetites had to be subordinated to the will of God. To think of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and the hunger pangs that he experienced. Nothing sinful about feeling pain due to hunger. And yet that hunger had to be subordinated to the Father's will as he continued to fast and obey and fulfill what his father had commanded. But then in verse 4, notice the next stage. Jesus was declared the Son of God with power or in power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
prior to the resurrection from the dead, Jesus was always the Son of God. But that had not yet been declared visibly, that had not yet come to bodily expression, if we take that term Son of God in that messianic sense as it applies to a man. What does it mean to be a Son of God? It's to be anointed with His Spirit. We receive the, the Spirit of adoption that cries, Abba, Father. There's a close connection between being a Son of God and having the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We see this in, in Jesus' life at the Incarnation, that the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary, and therefore he will be called the Son of God. Connection between the Holy Spirit's overshadowing and Christ's name as Son of God. We see it at Jesus' baptism that, that, that God pronounces from heaven, this is my Son. And yet, along with that pronouncement, simultaneous with it, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, descends upon Christ. Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Son. And in his resurrection, the resurrection is, on the one hand, a declaration by God, this is my Son. But it is also simultaneously where Jesus uh, receives the Holy Spirit and resurrection measure. So that again you see that link of declaration of sonship with the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus as he is raised from the dead in the power of the Spirit and becomes life-giving Spirit. Jesus is the anointed Son of God. And this reveals something about who he is eternally, that eternally he is begotten of the Father, that eternally the Spirit proceeds from the Father to the Son and from the Son in reciprocal love to the Father. But that is not revealed until Jesus is declared Son of God in this messianic sense, in which his body is raised in power. And this is going to be unpacked later on through Romans. But consider now first that it's brought up as a pattern for your body. That right now, in a sense, you are in verse 3. Your body is in verse 3. Your inner man is in verse 4. But your outer man is still in verse 3. So consider, if you have a, a surgery coming up in the near future, and you are dreading it, and you are dreading it, you need to know. Or for those of you who have chronic illnesses that have plagued you for months and months, maybe even years. You need to know. Or for those of you who have sailed past the prime of youth and it seems that with every passing year there is one more new ache and one more new pain and you are on the backside of the hill. You need to know. And for those of you who have been born with some kind of ailment or condition from birth, and for as long as you can remember, your body has not been so-called normal. And you are reminded of that every day. You need to know. 
for those of you who are attending and caring for those who are very sick and ill, and it's draining on you as you see their bodies also decaying. If they are in Christ, you need to know. And for those of you who have mourned and buried friends whose bodies are presently rotting and decaying in the grave or perhaps have reached the point where they're now just skeletons, you need to know. And for those of you who have struggled with an addiction where it seems like your own body is an obstacle to your sanctification, you need to know it will not always be like this. It will not always be like this because Jesus is the pattern for your bodily hope. That he took on a mortal body. He took on a body in which the totally non-sinful desires such as hunger had to be subordinated to the will of God. But he was raised from the dead as the son of God in power. And this is the pattern for you. That you will enjoy a resurrected body in which there is no longer that decay. In which there is no longer that pain and the ache. There is no longer that body as it is qualitatively characterized as in the flesh. But a body that will attain to resurrection life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we need to consider Jesus Christ as the procurer of our bodily hope. He is not just the pattern for our bodily hope, but he is also the one who guarantees and makes sure that it happens. Consider that Jesus fills his calling as son by coming and making other a great multitude that no one can number, sons of God as well. He is the son of God preeminently, even in that messian as a messianic title. He is the firstborn. He is the preeminent son of God. He fills out all the meanings of that word. But he also came to make you children and inheritors. Jesus is shown by his resurrection from the dead, not just to be the one who has received the Spirit. We saw that in, in his incarnation and in his baptism, that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Mary conceived in her womb. We saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism. We saw him going about in his earthly ministry in the power of the Spirit, resisting temptation, performing wonders, healing. Now in his resurrection and at Pentecost, we see that he is not only the receiver of God's spirit, he is not only the bearer of God's spirit, but he is also the giver of God's spirit. That the spirit proceeds from him as well. That he has come in full possession of the resurrection spirit, and it is his to send upon the church. It's his to send upon you so that you have within you right now already 
the resurrection spirit testifying with you in your hearts that you are a child of God. You are a son of God. And to be a son of God as human includes and involves a bodily aspect. Right now we are children of God and that is hidden. I can't look at any one of you and say, oh, clearly this person is a children of God just by looking at their body. You can't look at a stranger and come to that conclusion. It is hidden. But to be a son of God in that fullest sense, as it is applied to humans, entails a bodily component in which the body itself becomes conformed to the Holy Spirit. To demonstrate this, I don't want to give away too much of the story of later in the series in Romans, but flip over to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul has already said that we have received the spirit of adoption. We are already sons of God. The spirit already testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. But look at chapter 8, verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is to say, there is a, a yet future aspect to our adoption which consists in the redemption of the body as our sonship becomes bodily manifest to the world. And this is what all of creation is waiting for, for the manifestation of the sons of God bodily. And friends, it is going to happen because Jesus Christ is the procurer of your sonship. He himself has entered into resurrection life, and he has the resurrection spirit, and it's his to give. And he will, he has given that spirit already in such a way that at the last day, that spirit will not just have transformed your inner man, but he will have transformed you all the way from the inside out, including your body. And it will be bodily visible that you are a son of God. That is the hope, that is the bodily hope that has been set before you and which has been secured by your Savior, Jesus Christ. There's much that we will have to say in the meantime, what do we do with our bodies in the meantime? As we wait for that day and as we continue to live in the body and as we have a conflict going on in our bodies. But before we can go any further, before we can look to that hope of a resurrection body, we must first look to Jesus Christ, the pattern and procurer of our bodily hope. Jesus Christ, we praise you as the receiver, bearer, and giver of God's Holy Spirit. We ask that you would enable us to fasten our eyes upon you, to remember what you have suffered in the flesh, and to appreciate that you are now raised in incorruptibility and glory, and that this would give us great confidence and hope, even as we see all around us our outer man, our bodies, decay. Please comfort us with your gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen.